0: Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been affected by and overcome adversity. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of a variety of guests, as well as your host. You will hear stories of despair, recovery, and triumph from people who have risen from or are making their way through wilderness experiences. The goal of the Unhooked podcast is to take a deep, productive look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of affliction. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real-life stuff that all of us face. You will hear wisdom and hope from people who are fighters, who fought to persevere through bewildering circumstances and difficult obstacles. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show.
1: Welcome back, everyone. I am excited for part two of our series that I started last week with Lisa Bond, who was an RN and a DBT. Solution Specialist, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. So, I can't encourage you enough to go back and listen to last week's episode if you have not yet, but if you're all caught up, her intro information is in that episode, and I would just like to kind of get to it because there's so much really good, really helpful, rich information for families. So last week, um, we ended with a couple of case studies, but I wanted to first go into an article that was published about Dr. Marsha Linehan, who is the creator and developer of dialectical behavioral therapy. And it began, um, I believe it was in the New York Times, it began with one of her patients asking, Marsha, are you one of us? And she responded, do you mean have I suffered? And her patient said, no, I mean, are you one of us, like us? Because if you were, it would mean we could all have hope. And that's a paraphrase. Her patient was basically coming from a position of being suicidal and extreme oh. um, extreme situations of emotional damage and self-harm, things like that. So Marcia said that did it. She felt like she needed to open up with her story and be brave. She was first treated for extreme social withdrawal, At the age of 17, she came from a pretty big family. I think she was one of six children, and she began having struggles in the home. She said, "Um, we who struggle with these disorders can lead full, happy, productive lives if we have the right resources. So she ended up finding those resources, but before that admits that, in her words, she was pretty much in hell. She was 17 years old, and as Lisa described in the podcast last week, what one person might feel an emotional one or two others feel to an extreme level 15 and that would definitely be her Um, she was committed to an institute at 17 and was the sole occupant of what's called the seclusion room it's for the most severely ill patients her staff saw no alternative as she had attacked herself habitually She burned herself, slashed her arms and her legs, and her midsection using any object she could get her hands on. The solution room um, had no weapons, so she was put there by herself. Yet, she says, her urge to die only seemed to deepen. So she did the only thing that seemed to make sense to her at the time with no weapons. She banged her head against the floor as hard as she could. She said she felt totally empty and that she had no way to communicate what was going on and no one that understood it. Her childhood provided very few clues as she was an excellent student and a natural on the piano. Um, Nobody really knew what the illness was. So I'm paraphrasing this article, and if anybody would like to know the details, you can email me at AnnieUnhooked at gmail.com and I'll send it to you. That said, her doctors gave her a diagnosis of schizophrenia and medicated her with some powerful drugs. They strapped her down for electroshock treatments. I believe she received 14 and then later on 16 more, but nothing changed. And soon enough, she was back in the seclusion locked up in the ward. She um, the article goes on to say that everyone was terrified of ending up in that secluded room because it was for the most sick she was capable of caring a great deal about other people, and her passion was as deep as her loneliness, one of her fellow patients had described her as. For her discharge summary, after she had been there 26 months, it said she had. She was one of the most disturbed patients in the hospital. I just found this to be so interesting, so I'm just kind of trying to paraphrase before we get started. Nobody really knew what was happening to her, and medical care seemed to only make it worse. She says herself, The treatment would have to be not based on theory, but on fact. What precise emotion was leading to her latest gruesome act or thoughts of suicide? And what would break that chain and teach new behavior? Again, she says, I was in hell and I made a vow. When I get out, I'm going to come back and help others get out of here. Years later, she went on to become a psychiatrist. I believe she was a psychiatrist. A psychologist. Psychologist. Yeah. That's right. Um, she but she had some ups and downs. She actually lived at the YMCA for a while and was hospitalized again. She had been confused and lonely. Um, it said that she went on to, she went on to have a spiritual awakening of some sort, and that's all in the article. And she describes that uplifting experience as kind of being buoyant and lasting for about a year, but the feelings of devastation returned in the wake of a ended romance. But yet this time something was different because she could now weather emotional storms without harming herself. So what had changed? For a time it seemed like the bridge between behavior and understanding was out or in need of repair. So she says she accepted herself as she was, and the gulf between the person she wanted to be and the person she was that had left her desperate, hopeless, and deeply homesick for a life she had never known was virtually unbridgeable. But the basic idea of radical acceptance, as she now calls it, became increasingly important. So she goes on to develop this process of DBT that Lisa is a specialist in. And so I guess we can just get started from there because the developer of it came out years later to admit she was of the most severe patients. So welcome back. (laughs) Thanks.
2: And you know, she had to do herself what she was preaching to her clients. She had to live it herself. She literally had to synthesize two complete opposites that were existing in the same moment. I don't know how I did this, and I have to do it. I am doing the very best I can, and it's not good enough.
1: Right, and nothing makes sense. And and I didn't elaborate last week that dialectical is basically the concept of two opposites, which is change and acceptance. So somehow merging
2: those and when we do, we create something new that's where the transformation comes in the difficulty though and the, the discomfort that comes with that is is great um, so we always want to be balancing acceptance with I'm doing the best I can but also pushing for change whether it be abstinence or whether it be um, you know, stopping having emotional outbursts whether yeah. it's um, self-harm at the same time accepting where I am right now and never giving up the idea that this can change.
1: I think our belief systems can be so poison. I mean, we believe myths. I was just saying last, the, the other day in a meeting that I believed a myth for so long about forgiveness, that if I forgive somebody, I was holding on to something. If I forgive you, it made what happened okay, and I would open myself up to you doing it again, and that made me stupid or vulnerable, and that's not the meaning of forgiveness. And the meaning of acceptance isn't that, okay, this is just how things are. I've got to live with it and like it forever. That's not what it means. Absolutely. I think we believe false things. And
2: it even comes up you know, when a, when someone relapses. Right. It's followed up by all those negative thoughts about I'm stupid. I'll never get over this. Why did yeah. I do this? See? I'm hopeless. Yep. Um, and knowing that this doesn't mean you can't still have your desired result of getting better. Right. The goal is to fail well. Yeah. Fail well. Yeah.
1: And get up again. You had sent me an article. I have a couple of articles if anyone would like to receive them. And I loved it so much. It was describing DBT as it affects somebody with substance use disorder and addiction, and at the end of it it talks about when when a quarterback is going for a touchdown Back. yeah, I love it they 're going for a few yards at a time, and they don 't hit the mark every single time, but you still root for them, and that 's kind of the process of getting sober. You have the ultimate goal with that touchdown. But sometimes it's a few yards at a time and then you fall again. And your support system, you know, your entourage, I think grasping that gives you a better chance if they're rooting for you versus criticizing you and acting disappointed or taking it personal.
2: Right. We don't want to punish people for needing help. Yeah. That makes no sense whatsoever. Or struggling a little bit and then starting over. That's something to be celebrated. Right. I loved that concept,
1: so I can't encourage any of that enough. So then let's just kind of get right back to it, and I'll let you go into more detail on some things. We had ended with the 13-year-old in the um, classroom that was having trouble and having struggles and the final thing you had talked about was how the supports around him which again would be his entourage coaches teachers parents family kind of circling the wagons and being that cheering section nobody needs a jeering section you know it's that support so that said if you want to kind of pick up where your advice was there and then go into a specialty
2: that you had mentioned oh right um Well, absolutely. We talk about attachment and building attachment as one of the tools and one of the procedures in DBT for working with anybody, but especially um, with someone with trauma or someone with an addiction. And of course, oftentimes those are going to go hand in hand if a person has borderline personality disorder. Any way that any individual in their life any safe individual can reach out to start building predictable solid safe attachment is going to benefit that child regardless of whether they have access to other more intense types of treatment right. um one of the great resources that has come out over the last several years is called steps a it is a um curriculum put together by Drs. James and Liz Dexter-Mazza that focuses on helping adolescents develop and practice interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, distress tolerance skills, and even some mindfulness. It's designed to be taught by general ed teachers or even Uh uh, school personnel. Um, You don't need to have a certificate. It includes practical issues for implementing DBT skills in a school's overall curriculum, providing assignments, grading, handling confidentiality, making um, and enforcing rules of attendance, use of the provided handouts, a detailed overview of the curriculum, how to work with students who might need more intensive services. There's 30 detailed lesson plans, all the tests, all the answer keys, and all the handouts. Um, This is boxed up and ready to go, and it's been implemented across the country. If we can get the word out and parents and family members, teachers, coaches can bring this into the school systems, what a great start for this kid.
1: Yeah, because these kids are thrown into a classroom and taught ABCs and arithmetic and all of that, but a lot of them are coming in with heavy stuff. And the behavior is being disciplined or looked down on or managed. Which is only their way of coping. Yeah, that's right. The behavior, again, is their solutions and answers to solve a problem, but that's not really being picked up or explained to staff. So what a turn that
2: can be. And they don't necessarily have the vocabulary or a sense of being safe to tell. Yeah. Someone, what's going on? They they learn very early that school personnel are mandated reporters. Therefore, it makes it very right. scary for them to open up. It's, it's a very complicated. It issue, is. But giving them the skills, yeah, so they can help themselves and access to quality care is certainly well worth putting time and effort into.
1: I think it's even amazing to infuse that knowledge into teachers, so they know what they're dealing with. It's not just little Johnny has a behavior problem. It could be he's hearing screaming and yelling all night, or a parent that's checked out, or being raised by grandparents, or you know, abused by a neighbor. There could be all manner of situations
2: going on, causing his quote solutions, which are really his behavior. And the teachers are coming into classrooms all day long, every day, with multiple kids yeah. like that. So the teachers are going to be affected as well. They are they are traumatized oftentimes to a certain degree. To give the teachers the skills to manage their own response to this is such a gift. Then we start to build a community where you know we're sharing, we're giving, but we're also supporting and sustaining the people that are on the front lines.
1: Yeah, I love that. So I'll give all Lisa's information at the end. If anybody wants more on that or to order it. and look into that and definitely start implementing it um, and then I wanted to go into a couple of or a few examples of how DBT might be effective or where to begin with it in certain cases well I'll give one of my of my own you know speaking of trauma-informed I was one of those kids that walked into the classroom with what they call the invisible backpack that you're carrying, this heavy load, and I couldn't really focus because I didn't know what I was going home to every night. There was so much conflict, and we moved all the time, and poverty, and all of those things. But as I became a young mom, I was exhibiting physical signs and started having migraines and saw my family doctor, and he prescribed, I think it was codeine painkillers and antidepressants. right? Had he, because this stuff was just boiling on the surface, and if anybody would have, you know, kindly said what's going on, I probably would have talked about it. But I just managed it and got through it. I didn't try to hide it or present something different. I was just doing, getting through life, and I, you don't have the language at first. But about six, I can't remember, if it was six weeks or six months, and I removed myself from all medication and just kind of braved through it. But I never forgot that because my family tends to be the type that goes to weekly doctor appointments and turns to a prescription for anything. And he had prescribed that for me when really he wasn't recognizing trauma, that I had. Come, I was so shaken up inside from this family I came from and all these struggles and crisis. And then being a young mom, and, and you attract what you were marinating in. So I had these friendships that were kind of madness and toxic and all of these things. It was just a mess, a recipe for a mess. So that said, what would be your recommendation or do you think it's even possible to introduce concepts into the medical field for doctors to be more trauma-informed and promote solutions such as DBT before they even pull out that prescription pad.
2: We need to do that. You're, you're right on. In, yeah. in terms of borderline personality disorder. Um mclean hospital in boston attached to harvard university has a gap initiative the gap initiative is working reaching out to psychiatrists in particular in the medical community across the country to talk to them about the fact that for bpd most medicines are not effective Um, there may be um value in treating the most difficult side effects or comorbid um, mental health issues, for instance, bipolar disorder or um, profound depression, profound anxiety. But overall, there is no medication. Um, We're seeing as few medications as possible. Um, yeah. And skills, 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 not pills. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Um, and this is, that's good. this is something that the the community has to be educated about. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. The other thing is to have early intervention. We're talking about intervention at age 12. It's always like been that. preached that we do nothing and we don't call anything any diagnostic names until age 19 as far as borderline personality disorder goes. And what we're doing is we're denying these kids access to the treatment that they need, which can prevent yeah. the things that happen down the road. Um, Can we we educate nurse practitioners? Can we educate um, doctors, nurses, medical assistants about the common up-to-date facts about the opioid crisis? I think there are lots of people out there providing those trainings. However, not everyone can get them. Yeah. they're expensive you have to travel to go there so so many places here in ohio are stepping up to the plate yeah. and offering all kinds of great resources but we still need a way to individually get to these practitioners
1: yeah and let them know that there's more to this than a headache or yeah. <laughs> something that needs a prescription i had read that people who are in pain or struggling with some of these conditions can be exquisitely sensitive to criticism. And I've seen so much of that lately. And, and I, I can relate it to, I know I went through a time of that where I received criticism as a death sentence. You know, as an ultimate rejection. And I think that that can be symptomatic of borderline. But it can also be a result of somebody who's experienced deep, intense, chronic stress and
2: trauma. Absolutely. That belief that I'm not worthy. Yeah. That belief that I'm broken. Yeah, I believe that I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. It just becomes a sensory experience of life.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever heard the term chandeliering. No. it's. Um, I heard it for the first time in, in Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. Her husband's a pediatrician, and he said, if you think about when you, like, jam your finger and it hurts so bad... They judge pain when somebody comes into the emergency room based on exquisite sensitivity so that if you touch it, someone's going to hit the ceiling. But that can translate to psychological pain, too. So when you're, you know, exquisitely, yeah, you hit the chandelier as soon as something said to you, you take it wrong, you explode, and then you have to kind of come back down, you know, and that's all a part of, I think, DBT has helped me with that, and I know a lot of people that it could help
2: with that. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it can help any of us yeah. to be able to dial the volume down deliberately on the intensity of our emotion experience, no matter yeah. who you are. That, that gives a sense of competence yeah, and confidence and the ability to carry on. Yeah, uh, It's a, a very, a very important skill.
1: And if somebody's... Uh, all manner of things can cause that sensitivity to criticism. If somebody's an active addiction, mm-hmm. they have such mood swings and shame issues that saying anything to them can set them off to where you're left standing there in the wake of it, like, what in the world caused that reaction? So I think some of that coping ahead stuff that you talked about.
2: Yeah, we talk about... Um, you know when i when a client relapses our goal is for them to f- to fail well and that includes a detailed analysis of what led to the relapse what happened during it, what were the consequences yeah. failing well means we take time to do that and then we cope ahead we come up with a plan for what to do the next time we want to highlight the distress that that relapse caused this individual but also how they can avoid it moving forward again we're going to arm them with what they need so that if there is another relapse it's less intense it doesn't last as long and the other piece that's different about DBT is is we want to help that patient get up we don't want to leave them because they've relapsed we want to reach out to them if if the shame is keeping them hidden we've already made a list of where can i find you where should i look where should i call who should i check in with Mm because if you're not showing up because you're so ashamed with these horrible guilty shameful feelings that you're feeling afterwards how do i how do i how do i reach out to you because you're important and i don't want you to disappear
1: I love that so much. You know, I love um, 12 steps doesn't work for everyone, but I actually studied it to write about it. And I always end up studying these things and then diving in and needing them. So I loved going through them because step four was taking your own inventory and they call that the shame buster. And that is where you make peace with everything. But you, with everything that you've maybe considered a, a mistake in your life and a regret, you also take your inventory of the positives, though. So you're able to leave all of that behind and you don't really carry those regrets. So that is, that's really set me free in a Lot of areas where I don't walk in shame. My son, we don't hold condemnation against each other. Amends are always fresh. You know, you don't we don't accuse each other. If there's something to respectfully discuss, you know, it works out so much better when you, you can leave that shame behind. But that shame is
2: powerful. It is powerful and part of repairing that is not only making amends, but repairing the harm that's done to you. Yeah. To repair the harm we've done to ourselves as as a result and to, to articulate what that is. That, that truly constitutes a, a strong repair. Yeah.
1: So you mean like making amends to yourself? To yourself. Too? Yeah,
2: that was a big part of, for me, too. Yeah.
1: I had so much regret, and that can keep you stuck. It sure can. So um, I have a couple of case studies of how DBT might help. Um, if we want to consider somebody who's maybe in their 20s, a female who has struggled with addiction and possibly experienced trafficking, um, which is we were in an epidemic, so we're seeing more of that, and I just went through some training with it, and some of the girls were talking about the powerful brainwashing they went through, that it took some of them, you know, years sometimes, you know, not as long if they did intensive work, but to get over the trauma, the fear that their family would be killed or their kids would be harmed if they left that life, and all of the brainwashing that goes into effect. So I know that DBT is not the number one treatment for trauma, but it is a great addition to it so where would we start or maybe set up something for someone in their 20s that's coming out of
2: such intense shame and trauma the skills the the dbt skills and especially the mindfulness skills um it's going to be very difficult for a person with that kind of intense trauma to just be mindful because being mindful means being quiet and observing, and that which is in there to be observed is terrifying. Oh, horrendous. So to have somebody there who understands that, who is trauma-informed, who can help them learn to tolerate the distress first, learn to regulate emotions first, and then slowly move into mindfulness in a safe way, mindfulness of physical sensations in the body, mindfulness of of just the five senses, that's going to take time. That's almost like a, a readiness then to go on to do the really deep trauma treatment.
1: Yeah, I think it's so important, too, for the family members of these people to do work as well and to not shame because, I mean, everybody needs to get on board with that because the shame keeps them in that life. And the fear Absolutely. of the shame, along with all the other fears they have to face, that, there, that shame is always speaking to them,
2: reminding them, drawing them back. Yeah, and they've been conditioned, right? This, is, mm-hmm. this becomes their reality. It's going to take time to undo that. How do they undo that? By, by behaving opposite doing the opposite of what we do when we're ashamed so we're going to make eye contact sit up straight put our shoulders back have a confident gait give our information to people who we can trust um, to hear it and at the same time we have to be treated over and over and over again as a precious valuable human being and by someone who gives us um, I would say constant positive regard.
1: Oh, I love that. That's a term I use all the time about helping people out of addiction and even the family members because it's that. That's why I think rooms of support work so well because it's that family setting, and some of us haven't had that, of people that come together, don't judge, set their armor down. There, There's no mask, there's no hierarchy or pedestals, and there's a common positive regard for each other that is so encouraging. It's so encouraging. Like people think that sometimes support rooms are just somebody coming in and complaining, or at least that's the impression yeah. I had before. And again, I went and joined one so I could write about it and never left. I've been waiting <laughs> for four years and I, they're my family, except not as dysfunctional. They're so positive.
2: And it makes me happy to hear that that it's not about venting and it's not right. um, about complaining because honestly that just reinforces the shame, right? Yeah. And it agitates and increases the amount of emotion stress.
1: Right. Um, And I mean, there's, everyone's real. There's a certain amount that you go into your dynamics, but we don't go into the details of, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, no, it's not like that at all. It's really just so supportive.
2: It's part of accepting the unwanted reality.
1: So that said, um, I had actually written in my book, Unbroken, a chapter about why we need support. And I pulled from some examples of nature. And there was one um, study that I read about where these dolphins, one of their companions became paralyzed. So they gathered around him and lifted him to the surface to get oxygen. And the other was that redwood trees have really shallow roots for as tall and huge as they are. But it's because they unite underground so that they can stand as one when the storms come. And that is such a perfect picture of why support groups, recovery rooms, all of those situations where you are like-minded and coming together to make progress are so powerful and important. We need, we need a community. Yeah. Yeah, it's interpersonal. You know, a lot of things I, go, I call emotionally transmitted diseases. That's dysfunction and codependency and all of those things. It's a community that gets you out of it.
2: And it keeps us from wallowing in our own shame. Yeah, that's right. Because we're, we're articulating it and we have people to remind us. Yeah, you're reminding yourself. Shame is helpful in that it lets us know if we're doing something that's going to get us kicked out of a very important group. Yeah. It warns us that we need to change. It's not useful if it doesn't fit the facts. Right. It, it, in fact, it gets in the way, and I think you said we're stuck.
1: Yeah. And I think shame is, I think there's such a, an in-ground fear of being shunned and outcasted mm-hmm. that kind of plays into that. And if that's been a weapon in your life, then...
2: And if you've been taught, like these kids that are trafficked... Yeah. They, shame has been used for that purpose to keep them stuck. Yeah. It's been exploited. So we can educate them about how that works. They can learn to notice when it's happening. They may still believe it, but if they can just notice, oh, there's that shame message and keep moving forward, yeah, they're going to need a coach. They're going to need someone to take their hand and walk, not do it for them, but walk next to them while they do yeah. it. Yeah. Their entourage, as you call it. They, there can be wonderful healing and wonderful recovery.
1: Oh, once they heal, they are the most genuine, real, bottom line people you were I would never want to spend time with anyone but some of these people that have that healed from such great trauma. They are powerfully loyal and just wonderful human beings i mean they have an uphill climb out of that but once they heal actually the training i went through one of the facilitators said it takes nine people from nine different agencies to come around this person and surround them and be in their business and encourage them and remind them and support them to help them break free of it because it's so hard to get out of that life and that shame wow yeah so that is what community does my next example is um let's say we're in an epidemic and this is kind of the demographic for it a 20 something male was injured as an athlete which resulted in an opiate or painkiller addiction and it's taken him to homelessness couch surfing all of those things some of them you know backpack for a while and it's impacted his family relationships terribly how might dbt help this person who is kind of surging with addiction and all that all the baggage that comes with it
2: I think um, first and foremost we're going to be, and this is assuming that this kid has come in voluntarily, okay, and in that moment they want to change. And two minutes later, they're craving, and they're having urges, and it's all they can do to tolerate the physical distress of not being able to use. So in DBT, we're going to meet them right there, and we're going to say to them, what is the longest amount of time that you can commit to me that you cannot use? It could be 30 seconds. It could be 30 days. It could be five minutes. And we're going to say, I need you to commit to me that you are going to stay clean and sober for... 30 seconds and at the same time I want you to have in the back of your mind a plan a cope ahead plan in case you use so that we can decrease the chance of your wanting to use and if you do use we can decrease the intensity of the after effects of using and the length of time of your relapse so we're balancing I accept that this is what you can do at this time I believe 100% that you want to get rid of this. And I know that in this moment, you can do 30 seconds. You can do 20 seconds. Yeah. And then we're going to practice and repeat, practice and repeat, practice and repeat. And we're going to attach. So that clinician is going to be attaching. They're going to be, I want to hear from you on the phone. I want to hear from you by text. I want to hear from you, um, via Facebook. I want, I'm, we're going to be attached. We're going to have a consistent supportive relationship as you practice the skills to delay using with the goal of abstaining, always being first and foremost. Right. And knowing right at the back of our mind that we've got a good plan in case something happens.
1: That's so good because I think that it's those huge goals, those finish line touchdown goals Way that are big. over.
2: They're so overwhelming. Remember, these guys, um, they have multiple problems. It's not just the addiction to whatever the substance right. or substances it are. They can't do it all at once. We're going to take one target at a time to change, and we don't want to pick a target that's too much. Because then we're just setting them up for failure. That's right. And that's the last thing they need. We want to pick something that they can succeed at and build mastery over time. Right. And Thanks. be able to hold space for the fact that they may still be drinking. They may still be using, but they're yeah. using less, whatever it is. That takes a lot of energy to do, and that's what, that's what we're doing. And accomplishing
1: those goals gives them that strength and victory for the next step. But if you keep those longer. Yeah, if you keep those steps possible, make life possible. Make it possible today. I remember going through a really tough time and then one of the best bits of advice I was ever giving was just do the next right thing for the next 15 minutes over and over again. And pretty soon, it's an hour, and then it's that day, and then you're getting through it. And I really had to live, like, make my world really small because I had a lot of heartbreaking things going on in my life, and it was, you know, my son had moved and all of these things. I had to breathe, I had to, you know, regulate, and that, those smaller goals, I couldn't look at it, like, how am I gonna do this for five years, or then I'm
2: drowning. Well, you know, I think that's a common, after effect when a a family has stood next to and behind their loved one the the loved one does recover beautifully and then they move on (laughs) and then what does the family do because they have literally thrown themselves in a hundred percent in participating in this recovery to the extent that they can and then all of a sudden it's not needed anymore Where do you go? What do you do? This is where the family has to learn how to create a life worth living without that family member being the focus of their attention.
1: Right. That's uh, that's what I love about Allies in Recovery. That Craft Method, which Craft for anyone that isn't aware stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. That is where it's the family that gets on board and they modify their behavior and they learn to drop their weapons and to work on themselves and to bring everything back to strengthening the family and. The goal for the family is not to shame and argue and rebuild trust and get your point across. It's to get this person to agree to treatment. Treatment, treatment, treatment is always the goal. But in the midst of that, work on yourself and your issues. And I think that's so powerfully effective because everyone is surging with the situation and one person is kind of off into the sunset doing the work. And then at least for me, I was left behind and I was crazy.
2: You're left with nothing. Right. The, you know what's interesting is whether we're talking about craft, whether we're talking about D B T, whether we're talking about AA, the principles are the same. They all mesh beautifully together and yet there's a little twist on each one. Every human being is unique. Let's let's make this available to everyone yeah. so they can pick and choose from that which works most effectively from that for them. The other piece though is the, the need to have really good practitioners yes, right. to guide this who, who know what they're doing and who can diagnose appropriately right having that piece of the team is is critical
1: yeah you can't do it on your own and you really need good solid support yeah um so let's go to the next case study these are all people that have either been in um sessions with me rooms with me or write to me so they are openly shared their experiences um How might DBT work for the mom of an addicted son who is struggling with chronic, I'm sorry, complex PTSD, which again is different from PTSD because that's from chronic stress over time. This mom has codependency issues, um, enmeshment, anxiety, depression, and the situation has caused suicidal ideation. You know, not everybody that threatens suicide or goes into depression is clinically depressed or really suicidal. Sometimes your circumstances are so unbearable you can't imagine breathing through another hour so you your mind immediately grasps for how can i escape and get relief so how might dbt help this mom
2: we want to um we want to support her first of all and keep her alive long enough to be able to see that change is possible that, that this isn't going to last forever um a skills group would certainly be very helpful of course there's there's also a need for trauma treatment oftentimes learning the skills it are the first step to then being able to tolerate trauma treatment to go on um, from there being part of the Family Connections Program being part of the rooms that you're talking about all of all of these um, peer groups are going to be tremendously helpful being part of Al-Anon or any of those um, any of those groups as well but for DBT in particular we're going to need to teach her to tolerate the distress of things that she cannot change but we're going to have to support her while she does it. We're going to have help her build a connection not only with ourselves as the DBT um, therapists or leaders but also with other supportive people in her life and, and teach her how to maintain those relationships at the same time that she's learning how to not be enmeshed yeah. with her child, which is going to be a lonely, scary place to be. So we've got to build that community, give her some skills before we start jumping in with the real heavy treatments to deal with horrific trauma that underlies all of this. If we if we get the order of operations wrong, we're going to fail that individual. Right. Because
1: it is such a scary place. And if you think about how... You're programmed as a mom. I'm a caretaker. Protect, yeah. fix. You know, you pick out your kids' schools and their doctor and their teach them to walk and their clothing. And now you've got the situation, and they're oftentimes no longer a minor, and they're running off into terrifying yeah. situations that are high risk consequences. It is really hard to peel yourself down off the ceiling and be calm through that. It's very hard.
2: You need practice, and you need support. That's right. And the other thing is most of your friends aren't living that life right most of yeah. your friends are having the normal pain of life yeah so it's very isolating
1: very isolating and the advice they give even well meaning is not typically helpful when somebody doesn't understand it and hasn't been through it you can be wounded further by someone's casual advice that's why yeah good clinicians you're definitely right okay so let's flip this script and um how about the father of an addicted daughter who he is now losing control emotionally over over not only the condition of her life, you know, because there's some trafficking involved when you've got a dad that's seeing his little girl that's now out doing some things for narcotics and just to kind of stay well. And the many effects it's had on the family, including you can find yourself in financial ruin, let alone, you know, the surface things like fear and embarrassment. And, you know, fear is not a surface thing, but the embarrassment it causes if you're a professional or, you know, a church going family or whatever the case may be. You've got this daughter out here. How might DBT help the dad in this situation who just can't handle it?
2: The Family Connections program, which is a 12-week manualized program to teach family members how to take care of themselves in the midst of all this chaos, yeah. is is going to be invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, we, can, we can give the information of how to um, get in touch with that program and register for it. It's offered across the country, both in person and on um, conference calls. It, there may be a waiting list. Um, there aren't enough leaders, but we're training more. Especially here in the Midwest, um, very valuable program, and that's one of the things that I'm hearing about now quite a bit are um, teenagers and young adults, who um, women in particular, who are sent selling pictures of themselves online, okay, or doing. Um, sex talking sexting or sex talking on the phone in order to get cash money in order to buy marijuana in order to buy opioids whatever they want to use and this is becoming very common and when the when the families find out about this they're horrified because they have no clue yeah you know sooner or later you're gonna catch something but this particular behavior is very difficult um it's very very easy to hide it and it's and it's an early entrance in into sex trafficking um it's devastating for the parents they to be able to come into a group situation where other people get it and are not going to blame you as a parent because your family may be blaming you your friends who wants to go out and tell anybody about this yeah are you going to tell your boss or the lady in the next cubicle Right, that my daughter is doing this. It's
1: so My young daughter, because it just looks like she's a bad person. These
2: are 12, 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's good to have resources because these things are happening more than, you know, most people would like to admit. Um, Here's a hot topic. This is one that can be particularly nasty. If there is a couple that has some infidelity issues, but the husband cannot seem to find his way, to emotional freedom, openness, and honesty, how might DBT help them as a couple?
2: I am not aware of any couple's work in DBT. specifically that's not now individually each one of them it's necessary (laughs) yeah absolutely would benefit for sure and again we talked about this before not everyone needs comprehensive dbt yeah by any means that there are certain populations with multiple problems especially with a high suicidality and comorbid what is comorbid also associated um maybe abuse disorders traumatic abuse disorders or drug and alcohol abuse disorders or borderline personality disorder plus bipolar disorder you know you've got multiple layers of issues then you're going to be looking at a comprehensive um, dbt but oftentimes treatment as usual for whatever the issue so good marital counseling good couples counseling good sex addiction counseling depending on what the issue is plus dbt skills as an adjunct is going to be the treatment of choice
1: there's also i think in the rooms there's also sex and love addiction or those affected by somebody who has those situations um and that support is so necessary because you need a safe place to kind of go get that poison out and hear without judgment that others have been what you've been through what you've gone through and know what you're feeling Mm -hmm. and that i think is tremendously helpful um what about, you know, unfortunately, we've heard of several young adults who have overdosed. Mm-hmm. How might DBT help somebody who is either new to grief and loss or in deep grief, you know, shocking grief, epidemic related or otherwise?
2: Again, this would be a, a situation where we're going to defer to a, a well-trained grief therapist mm-hmm. and at the same time be using those DBT skills of Uh, modulating your emotion tolerating distress maintaining and improving relationships during this time learning how to take care of yourself and as always mindfulness right to be able to stay in the present moment Mm -hmm. dbt itself would not be a treatment for that be
1: secondary it would or maybe after when you're not surging so bad for me
2: the way i look at it it's almost readiness it's before oh okay yeah however in the midst of real coping deep, ahead exactly learning how to well learning how to tolerate having this overwhelming grief when that wave of yeah. grief hits how do i maintain that uh, the the two opposite ends of the of the spectrum i want to notice the grief i want to take it seriously and i want to let myself grieve and at the same time i don't want to make things worse and it's real easy worse, to right? make things worse. Yeah. So how, how do I limit that? How do I learn to be able to do it for a little while and then put it in a box, set it aside, and then come back and take it out the next time? Grief doesn't always work that no. way. Sometimes it just comes and slaps you. Yeah. So in that moment, how do I ride the wave of that emotional experience without having to resort to anything like missing work or um, substances, yeah. relationships, all of our different coping mechanisms? that aren't necessarily healthy or worst case scenario, giving up and yeah. then, you know, becoming suicidal and, and doing something to hurt themselves.
1: Yeah, I have a great friend who's, um, she's a grief blogger and she has a book out and she came to one of my first book signings and she had, it was, she had lost her daughter, her husband, and then her best friend all within two years oh. and she was just... I mean, raw. And she told me she was hiking the Appalachian Trail alone. And afterward, I said, how in the world did you do that? And she said, I don't know. I was insane. I was so insane with grief. And I don't think there's a box you can put anyone into because grief is such a huge energy. And it comes with crashing waves. And there's just no good way to, you know, tell somebody to handle it. They've just got to kind of figure it out and have
2: good support around them. And we give them good tools to use. We give them available support to do what's needed to not make things worse. Right.
1: Not make things worse. I like that goal. That's one of those touchdown goals that are kind of, you know, a few yards at a time. I'm just not going to make what I'm going through worse. This conflict worse. This grief worse. You know, that is a simple tool that I think has profound weight. I agree. I had an experience, and I kind of want to include this just because I know people sometimes come in as a layman, and if you're seeking out counseling or therapy, a lot of times it's because something's in trouble, you know, relationship or whatever. Um, and I had had an experience with a difficult therapist who didn't understand trauma and all that. And um, anyway, he was very invalidating, and he um, he really seemed to need more from us than we got from him, and he gave experiences where he kind of got in his wife's face I would say, you effed up. And then he told us how he went back and apologized. And like all of our sessions, we were in there as a group, as a family that was in turmoil. All of our sessions kind of centered around these arrogant examples he gave from his own life. And not really, we didn't really make progress on our own. So um I was highly triggered at the time. My son had just um, been really gone through a bad time, bad season with his use. So this therapist had asked us, finally, you know, why are you here? And I said, because... I want an expert, a professional to help us. And he took it really personal and showed me his degrees and shouted at me, which was traumatizing because, you know, whether you're in a church setting and that's a pastor doing it or you're, you know, somebody of authority, at that time anybody in any authority or with more education than me was right and I was wrong. So I was was really wounded. So I went home, cried all the way home, sent him an apology for it. We went to like two or three more um, sessions, a few weeks of it, and continued. I didn't. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just seeing things wrong or you know, being a victim. But we concluded because we just weren't making progress. And I went back to him about a year or two later and I paid for a session and I told him how he'd got it wrong, that I'd come from dysfunction, I had been invalidated, I was highly triggered, I was so stressed out with my son, I'd had this mom issue, we had a lot of conflict in our life, and he really just handled it wrong. And I would never go back now, probably, and try to validate myself. But I felt like for anybody like me, maybe going, finding themselves in his office, you know, making him aware would, I felt kind of like it was preventative. But that said, I don't think I did my due diligence for myself in researching what types of therapy there are, what we needed, what was a fit for us, catching early on that we weren't making progress, or I wasn't kind of, my language wasn't understood, and he wasn't speaking a language I understood. So, I think it's about becoming your own advocate and choosing somebody who is trauma-informed and knowing how to handle your situation. Exactly. You know, an what educate, are your thoughts? An
2: educated consumer of right. mental health. And good practitioners will always give you many referrals, um, and they right. will tell you, try it on, give it four yeah. or five sessions, and if it doesn't feel right, go look for the right connection. Make yeah. sure that you're you're getting what you want. Having access to somebody who can direct you to the most um, skilled, the most well-trained in the specific treatments, um, practitioners will be helpful as well.
1: Yeah, because not everyone in the mental health field is sound (laughs) they're not and I actually hooked up with a a woman who's a therapist in New York City and she counsels counselors and she writes about it how um, there you can be traumatized by having a therapist who is not careful to not injure you especially if you're in a heightened state so had I found myself in your office or in one of your groups would you have been likely to recognize that I was highly triggered and dealing with all of these stresses
2: absolutely absolutely and and to have referred you on for the treatment that you need at that point.
1: Yeah, that's why it's so important to be your own advocate and really look out for yourself. That said, I would really like to know if you could um, kind of go into detail with borderline personality. What are the signs and symptoms? Um, what are the causes? And I know a lot of times um, and the DSM doesn't recognize complex PTSD and some of those issues, trauma-related after effects, as much as they do the cluster issues and the borderline. So I sometimes... Trauma can show up as borderline. I know certainly my personality can present in those ways. So, can you explain kind of the signs and symptoms and
2: what the differences are? Yeah, I'm. I without with trying to keep it short, and um, we have to be careful because trauma and DID or trauma and borderline personality disorder sit right on top of each other. Um, there is. More often than not, trauma that has occurred as part of the development of borderline personality disorder right so one has to be very careful to sort out what's a personality disorder and what in fact is a symptom of trauma of trauma traumatic treatment yeah okay um. So it becomes really important to have a good diagnostician. If we just look at the DSM and we look at those 9 to 13 criteria and we say so and so meets at least X of those, so they have this. <laughs> you are
1: border to 9. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's not, that's a disservice. Right. There are so many screening tools um, out there that are measurable, quantifiable. They've been tested. The tests have been replicated both for um, different degrees of trauma, from simple PTSD to complex trauma to dissociative identity disorder. All of the above. Um, we need to have people who are who are trained to be able to do this. It's very it's very scary to me that people will walk into a psychiatrist's office and walk out with a diagnosis based on I'm going to open this book and read to you these nine things how many of these do you think sound like you oh all of these okay this is what (laughs) you have most of us have moments when we feel like any number of these criteria not only for BPD but for any disorder right we're human beings there are times when we endorse some of these and others of them they don't exist for us at all um what we're talking about now is changing um the diagnosis name there's not um it has didn't happen in this most recent dsm but we expect it to happen in the next one and it's going to be something along the lines of disorders of pervasive emotion dysregulation which is going to be a much broader area um, and allows for custom fitting treatments to fit wherever somebody is on the spectrum Um, I tell people don't get so locked up in the diagnostics. What we want to look at is how severe is your emotion dysregulation? Right. Is it unusual? Is it situational? Is it across the board? Has it been there since you were an infant? Did it develop after puberty? Did it develop following a traumatic incident? And where are the traumas in your life? Then, based on that, how can we best help you solve the problems that have come up as a result of this, we might be looking at comprehensive DBT. We might be looking at full-blown trauma treatment. We might be looking at EMDR. We might be looking at something for depression or for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, we may be having, in in sort of a, in a hierarchy, a little bit of all. I, always, I, I am really uncomfortable about defining a person based on a list of possible traits that are listed in a book.
1: I am too and I think that there's a lot of umbrellas that are put on people and it's just, you know, sometimes it can go from layman addressing behavior as bad mm-hmm. or crazy, you know, she's psycho yeah. to all the way to diagnostic like that. In fact, I just had I was just working with a family recently and the daughter is coming out of addiction, but in the process of that two people she was close to overdosed and a woman that was like a mother to her had died of cancer. So she's in profound, deep grief. And the treatment center that took her in wasn't really skilled in that. So they wanted to admit her for psychosis because she couldn't stop sobbing. But I was like, well, I have had days like that. She's in deep grief. She's not in psychosis. So it really is as different as a fingerprint and what's needed with that specific person and their specific circumstances.
2: Exactly. And it gets missed so much. Just because a person cuts doesn't mean that they're borderline. Yeah, um, you know there are so many, so many fine points to this stuff. It's,
1: there, there are, and like ACOA, are you familiar with a lot yes. of the adult mm-hmm. children of? If, if you you can um, research the laundry list of behaviors that right. present if you've grown up in a highly dysfunctional household where a parent was an adult or an addict or just deeply emotionally immature that produces effects that show up
2: absolutely i mean even codependence right yeah and women are are raised to be codependent right right a <laughs> to, lot. to begin yeah. with regardless of whether you've had any of the other it really takes some work and and some digging
1: yeah it really does you can't just kind of slap a label on anybody i was thinking about how recently self-harm varies um my self-harm was by I argued a lot with family members to try to get them to see. I would go anywhere from chalkboard drawings to hieroglyphics to make the (laughs) point and prove the truth. And it really just didn't matter. The agenda was not to hear me or validate me at all. So, I mean, I could be spun all over the world and it it really just didn't matter. So it was really self-harm to continue that. You know, self-harm can be what you do to your body, but it can also be kind of going back into a relationship where you know what's going to happen again or... Searching for somebody on social media that's gonna wound you <laughs> when you see how they're doing Absolutely. now. Absolutely. You know, yeah. self harm has a lot
2: it's complicated. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that you qualify for this diagnosis or this diagnosis. Yeah. It so it's you're suffering when and I, you're doing the best you can to figure a way out. And it's not working.
1: Your behavior is your solutions Mm -hmm. to solve a problem, but it's destructive. And you've either been taught that or you're desperate coming up with something. So what are your DBT steps for when somebody is on some level self-harming?
2: We treat physical self-harm that can potentially result in increased suicidality um, as a priority one target. So suicide and physical self-harm. Other ones tend to come more under quality of life, which is going to be a level three Um, stage of treatment however again you can't for some people going and if you're very suicidal and going on Facebook and seeing how beautifully everybody else is doing yeah and your life that could be very much attached to every time you've made a suicide attempt that's what you've done right before is been on Facebook so in that case we might be targeting that Again, there's not a pat answer. It depends on the individual and their situation. Yeah, and just
1: learning to become mindful and mindfully self-aware. Can you describe what black and white thinking is? And sometimes it's called the split.
2: Right. Oftentimes people um, have learned over time that there is a right and there's a wrong. There's an all or there's a nothing. Um, and those that's all that exists. There is no shade of gray. That's what we're talking about with black and white thinking. Um, it's this inability to see other perspectives. Yeah. It, it just doesn't code in the brain. There's this way and then there's the wrong way. Um, black and white thinking, all or nothing... Keeps us from having successful relationships. It also keeps us stuck. Yeah. Um, So challenging those thoughts um, is a great tool. However, you have to know that you're having them. You have to figure out what areas of life are you experiencing them so often. uh, Then be able to label them when they happen and then develop the ability to generate alternative perspectives. It's a lot of work. Yeah,
1: it is. And it's a lot of being aware.
2: Yeah, and when you're highly distressed, you don't really want to be aware, right? You want to get away from it. You want to avoid. Yeah. So, again, this takes time because we can't expect people to just read this in a book. It sounds great and then go home and do it and be happily ever after. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that's
1: that's where that positive regard and doing the work, that coping ahead, yep. what you do, it's almost like weight loss. The workout you do today doesn't necessarily show up today, but you start seeing the effects in weeks ahead. Exactly. And, you know, I'd, um, I was doing a yoga practice a few weeks ago, and the teacher had said, yoga reveals itself. You just keep coming to the mat every day, and all of a sudden you start noticing that you're better at it or that it feels better. And that's really the process of... Recovery and doing therapy work and all of those things. It starts to reveal itself as you're going for those daily goals. Over time.
2: Yeah. That's right. The the transformation is gradual. Um, You have to work. You work as much as you can, given what you've got in in any situation. And know that if you, you know, lose it for a little while, you can come back and you move forward again yeah
1: and that validation piece too the radical acceptance and the validation are just my favorite
2: parts of dbt uh, so many people have never learned that yeah. what they're feeling is okay that it makes sense and that it's real they've been told over and over again that, that it's wrong so they're mm-hmm. wrong right validating oh this makes sense to me of course you feel that way Is huge It allows them to be present and to exist in the world.
1: And all of a sudden it opens up the the idea that you matter and you have a voice and you have some control and some choice over the direction things go. Absolutely. I I can remember every instance, the first few that occurred in my life where somebody validated my experience because I had so many voices against me and then because I came from that, I attracted, you know, the same types of relationships and friendships that were very invalidating, a lot of invalidators. And I, I even remember I had a brother in law once I was complaining about my mother. She argued with me constantly, and I was shouting the story to him, and I wasn't shouting at him, but I was. I would get so frustrated that I couldn't talk about it without getting worked up, and he said, you're out of control, and I said, I know, I am. You know, I admitted it, but you don't know what I'm going through. This is like harassment, these arguments, and, and I can't break through, and I can't find peace, and he said, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And I don't know why, but that was like deflated that hot air balloon. And that was, and I've had this loyalty to him for years because in this army of people that always sided with her, even if she was provably wrong, this is one person that didn't necessarily have to side with me, but saw the truth. Yeah. And that is miraculous feeling.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> if Absolutely. you're surrounded. It allows yeah. you to breathe again.
1: Yeah, and think there's
2: hope. To have a, a, a moment of safety.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it gave me great hope. Um, you know, um, I was going to continue to say that, you know, when people come up out of dysfunctional families or have gone into addiction and trafficking and all of those things, you start to believe that you're not loved or forgivable. And that becomes the highlight of your belief system and recovery and recovery groups and DBT, I think, all of that together start to untangle that belief system because I think a part of that's at the root of it.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, and again, whether it's schema therapy or any of the the treatments that you just discussed, people are going to benefit from them. And while they all have pieces of each other, no one is the exact perfect treatment for any one person. Right. We have to do the best we can to match people with the best evidence-based treatment for what they're struggling with, and then use the other things after the evidence-based treatment as adjuncts, and that right. can be wonderful.
1: Yeah, and it, I Nobody think runs. that can change daily sometimes, yeah. just according to what your season you're in. I noticed, like, DBT reveals itself like yoga, like I was saying, and one way that I've noticed is a lot more peace, but you become noticeably, at least for me, less psychotic, so... <laughs> A lot of my reactions and triggers, and I know that that's helpful you know, for others as well who have experienced that. Would you say it's a long time frame before you start to see people kind of come down off that chandelier?
2: Comprehensive DBT takes a while. I mean, it's, it's a minimum of six months to a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, so it's quite an investment. The s- improvement that you see very quickly is, is when people learn the skills and practice them. And what they're going to find is that their short-term improvement, their ability to tolerate distress and regulate their emotion, their skillfulness in interpersonal situations improves dramatically very quickly. Yeah, I think, I just think of so many
1: situations where you've got somebody that everyone knows is easily triggered or freaks out over every little thing. So people are used to tiptoeing around them and not upsetting them or keeping things from them to not, you know, rock the boat. You know, when it comes to, I know personally for me, and I can only relate to my own experience enough that I hope others who have experienced similar journeys can understand, somewhat being a family scapegoat or the trash can for all our family junk. Because I was the youngest and I came in after a lot of crisis. One thing I learned, and I know people in addiction learn it or come to believe it or... Are told this, you're not lovable and you're not forgivable. And when when that's deeply in your subconscious, it becomes the highlight of your belief system. It becomes that highlight reel that you're constantly listening to. So, as far as recovery goes, for me, it's involved therapy and journaling. I really sat down intensely and aggressively with it for a good six months with the DBT, and then another two years of working through that to undo all of that damage and those old remedies and wrong ways of thinking and the types of people and situations I attracted and allowed and accepted. DBT was phenomenal in helping me undo all of those belief systems. I mean, it really can just apply to anybody who has that internal struggle of belief. Definitely. Definitely it and it reveals itself so that you don't have to do the heavy lifting forever so that said we like to end on hope your work with dbt and families gives a lot of information and hope to families so is there any thoughts you might share with family members who are still struggling and someone might need to recover or they are operating around someone that's affecting
2: everybody what are your thoughts of hope you know what people get better I yeah, see it over and over that. and over again. People with BPD enter recovery. People with addiction become clean and sober. Uh, people with general anxi- generalized anxiety disorder, depression, complex PTSD. There are a number of treatments out there that are very very successful for all of these for all of these problems. And with the right um, with the right access to those treatments, um, the changes can happen very very quickly. People get better. They will get better. The goal is to stay alive long enough Mm -hmm. to let that happen because change is inevitable.
1: And and misery doesn't have to last. You don't have to have a lifetime of misery. You just don't have to. Right. I don't think that I a long time realized that and you know I know other people that kind of drown in it and get stuck I know um one person I can think of just an associate or an acquaintance has been went through a terrible divorce about 20 years ago and still talks about it like it was yesterday you don't have to stay stuck in misery there there is a way out there is a way out um it takes work it does there it does but you don't have to invest the same amount of time working it out as you did being stuck in it
2: and we don't have to do it alone I love that.
1: And then I I like to offer encouragement to someone who loves struggling people because I spent a lot of years affected by other people's decisions, sometimes more than my own. What encouragement might you give to the family member of somebody who is in deep struggle, whether it's borderline, trauma, suicidal, high stress, chandeliering type of stuff, addiction, whatever. What do you advise
2: for the family? Put on your own oxygen mask first. Take care of yourself stop take a step back look at the situation and then reach out and get the help that you need we can't control anyone else we can control how we respond to them and in order to stay in the game which is always the goal because these are people that we love right is how do we take care of ourselves
1: That is even soothing just hearing it. You're just a natural at it. Um, I cannot recommend looking up Lisa's work enough. I will have her sites and all of that stuff in the show notes. Um, What is your website and email address so that our family members can reach out,
2: hear about your work, um, find you? My email is lisa bond at gmail dot com. Um, my website is lisabonddbtsolutions.com. dbt And what were those other websites that you recommended? The, the National, <coughs> excuse me, the National <laughs> Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder is NEA. BPD.org, and this is where you're going to find family connections uh, and a, a host of other resources. A similar site, which is tied to uh, McLean Hospital, uh, an offshoot of Harvard University, is borderlinepersonalitydisorder.com.
1: And you know, there's a lot of information on the Addicts Parents United. Though on Facebook and their website and the Allies in Recovery page has great resources of blogs and podcasts and things like that on there. It doesn't really matter if you've got a child in psychosis who has been on meth for a long time or they are somebody who is suicidal or somebody that just can't handle stress. There are resources and there is community for you. You don't have to stay stuck in misery. You don't have to give up on a loved one and you don't have to go through it alone. So with that said, what I have used DBT for the most and what I've learned from it is how to find balance and regulate it. So I wanted to end it with this thought from um, my son got me a birthday present last year called the low kai or the low key bracelet and the way he explained it was that it was the number 2 which me he told me it meant that my life was at the next level, I was stepping up and it has a little bit of a stronger bond on it. It has water from Mount Everest and mud from the Dead Sea, which are the highest and lowest points of the world, as a reminder to stay humble in your high times and hopeful when you're at your lowest. And for me, that is all about balance. So I really appreciate you coming on here. I've learned so much from you. I think you're going to be a great resource. I'd like to have you on again and refer to you. I think everyone should reach out and at least find out about the work that Lisa does. If it doesn't benefit you, I'm sure you know someone that could qualify for it. Um, And I honestly think we just became best friends. I think we did. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, everyone.
0: You have been listening to The Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found on Amazon, Cokesbury, barnesandnoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast.